Dr. David Stevenson, thank you so much for taking the time to interview with us today. And uh, I must say, I feel that big data has been demystified uh, after reading your book. Thank you so much. I've got a few questions for you about your book and uh, some questions from the Harvard alumni community as well. Um, one question, I've got a very rudimentary question I'd like to lead with, though, and that is that how big does data have to be to be big? I mean, the whole term big data is really nebulous. You know, over one terabyte is too big for a laptop. Um, when you're looking at these websites, they're pulling in several gigabytes or even over a terabyte of data every day. When you're looking at, um, yeah, these other scientific institutions, it's petabytes of data. Um, so a lot of people don't even use the term big data anymore. And in some sense, there's so much of it out there. But the basic concept of big data was the data that suddenly got much bigger than we knew how to handle using the tools we back in the in the 20th century. So that's kind of the roughly how I describe it, you know, sort of that change that happened around the turn of the millennium. Seems like one of the key drivers is the absolute plummet in the cost of storage. I mean, you said uh, a gigabyte of storage was $200,000 in 1980, and in 2017, it cost three cents. So I've got a question from Hal Oppenheimer in the, in the community, and he asks, is it true that artificial intelligence can only do things that don't require real intelligence. What's definitely true is that uh, AI today is limited to what they call narrow AI, right? So if you suppose, if you pose a very specific type of question to it, you know, how do I play this game or how do I do this specific business problem, like recognizing an image or predicting the next item that someone's going to purchase? Uh, if you have a very specific task for it, that narrow task is something that AI can do really, really well. Um, but if you're talking about intelligence, like a human is intelligent, then no, um, it's nowhere near being able to function in that broad scope. And it seems like AI has come, kind of come in waves. Uh, these, there was a boom in the 60s and the 80s. Um, actually, actually, it stalled out in the 60s and the 80s. So why the resurgence now? What, what's changed? Yeah, that's, that's something that people don't always realize is that, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement about what AI can do now. Um, and people don't always realize that we've been through this to some extent, you know, in the 60s and again in the 80s. Um, and a lot of the, the basic ideas of what we're doing, how we're approaching problems, those ideas haven't come so far. But a couple a couple of significant changes that have happened is uh, one, as you mentioned before, the cost of computing, right? Because essentially, we can do a lot more for a lot less money now. And whereas back in the 80s, you know, to have a computer powerful enough to do anything interesting would have cost thousands, tens of thousands, the large companies and the governments had that. Now, because of the way that the price of computing has come, gone down, really any company can invest in a couple of servers or even laptops and do so much more with AI. And so that that's really caused a huge proliferation in the availability of AI. Well, even who's using AI, right? So it's not just a few highly paid people in small companies, but you know, even teenagers now, they're they're plugging into these common APIs and and developing applications with AI. So it's spreading much, much more quickly. Perhaps we can tease out the meaning of machine learning versus AI. You actually I always thought of machine learning as a, a really a central part of AI, but you mentioned that Big Blue, the computer that beat the world chess champion in nineteen ninety seven, mm -hmm. was AI but it wasn't using machine learning. So how is, how is that different? How is AI separate from machine learning? Yeah, no, that's a great question, right? And uh, the distinction gets blurred quite a bit. So in short, AI is anything that we consider to be mimicking human intelligence, right? If we see a machine do something that we think 
that's you know that's intelligent, then we'll call that AI. So it's a very it's it's not a clear boundary. Um, it used to be that if a, a computer could recognize handwriting digits, we call that AI. Um, and at some point, people said, look, it's so well understood how to do that that we're not even going to call that AI anymore. Now, machine learning in general is this concept where we say, I've programmed the computer, and one day from now, it's doing things better than when I first released the program. You know, And a week later, it's doing things even better. Writing a program which is able to learn after I finished writing the program, that's what machine learning is. And most of the AI we have out there now are of machine learning. It's something which the more information it feeds on, the better and better and more accurate it gets. I've got a question from Lisa Hughes from the Harvard alumni community, and she says, uh, reflecting on the anecdote of the father, this is from your book, of course, about the, the target uh, case, reflecting on the anecdote of the father who learned of his daughter's pregnancy because Target's big data figured it out, one wonders what will become of the quaint notion of privacy. Can you share thoughts on the individual and her or his rights to privacy in a world where computers will know more about us and about our relationships with others than we ourselves will know. Yeah, and, and that's up to us to define really as communities, as countries and as societies. Um, and I, so what I do is I do trainings for, for data scientists and one of the modules I do focuses on privacy and we, we look at the different types of laws uh, and you see that there's a real difference in different countries, different cultures in terms of what should be private. So most of us agree that our, for example, our, um, our health records should be private. So we really have to start by deciding as societies what is private. Um, and then the big scary part of is for consumers to understand what data is available on them. Um, and that's where people get really frightened, I think, and confused. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what can be done with technology now. Does Facebook really know about me? What can they infer about me? Why, if I go shopping on one site and I go to another site, do I see advertisements for the product I looked at on the last site, right? So it's people's uncertainty over what's actually happening behind the scenes. And I think the hope is that as we mature as societies, as we start to understand technology more and start to really clarify what we need to be private, fear will go away. But we're definitely in a really difficult growing stage now. And you mentioned in the book a term which I'd not heard before, which would be nice to uh, just throw out there, see if you could uh, give us some explanation of what is dark data. Oh, yeah, dark data. Yeah, dark data is kind of a cool term you hear people talk about. Um, I have not really heard much in terms of people actually using it beneficially. So in short, the, this concept of dark data is the network data that's going on in our systems. Um, you know, the flow of of uh, bits through our networks and our routers and such. Um, and people say, like, we're not really using that now. It's something which is just in the background. We're not even storing it. So they call it dark data. Um, but that's in short what it is. Um, you know, I haven't seen much use for it. Um, I have seen a study where people were able to identify what Netflix movies you were watching based on the bit transfer rate going into your home. Um, that's the only thing remotely resembling an application of dark data that I've seen. So you mentioned a particularly yeah, yeah. valuable kind of data, which is user journey data in, in the context of online, I imagine. So this is good for, you said it's, it's especially important to look for micro-conversions. Uh, so what are some examples of micro-conversions and why is this important? And micro-conversion are the steps along that conversion funnel, the steps which are leading towards that conversion. So for example, if I'm purchasing a computer, 
uh, my microversion uh, when I view an item page for the computer, uh, when I put the computer in my basket, um, and then finally I make that conversion. So you know the item view, those are all microconversions. Um, and there could be really anything I define, right? Uh, favoriting an item could be a microconversion. Um, creating a preference list could be, that might also be a microconversion, or I might consider that a you know macro conversion. But it essentially, it's those those small items that are important to me, and analyze, for example, these microconversion events, so that I can better understand the customer, and ultimately lead to better macro conversions, better um, end sales at the end of the line. So, talking about conversions, I mean part part and parcel with this is getting to know the customers better. And Lisa Hughes has. Uh, uh, Wonderful question here, which is, I'm going to read it out to you. So she says, if you ran a small shop and were on a first name basis, in fact, I think this is a segment from your book, so let me read this out to give some context. If you ran a small shop and were on a first name basis with each customer, you'd already have such insights uh, and would really be able to rely on them to improve your business. But in e-commerce with millions of unseen customers, recapturing this level of insight is extraordinary. We're not talking about invasive spying techniques. You can get valuable insights from studying even anonymous online customer journeys. So to that point, Lisa says, it seems that one thing big data and machine learning allow us to do is to approximate or simulate the kinds of deep and genuinely helpful and symbiotic relationships that are formed between small business proprietors and their long-time customers. It gives the impression that we are known, valued, and important to the business because they seem to know and value us. And this is innocuous and fine at the retail level, I suppose, or even in terms of interactions with final, uh, financial services or insurance institutions. However, one can imagine that there are more insidious ways, more manipulative and frankly terrifying ways, in which our feeling of being known, appreciated, understood, valued, can be utilized via mass communication channels to appeal to people not just to buy things, but influence all kinds of other behavior as well. What should we do to be comfortable in believing that we will remain the masters of this extraordinarily powerful technology? Yeah, no, I mean, we almost don't have to imagine it, right? We're, we're almost seeing that happen now with some of these Facebook posts and such, yeah. uh, people using social media to be manipulative. Um, you know, and that's, again, where we as a society try to, you know, we understand what's happening and how people are trying to manipulate and take advantage of us. Um, and we take action, you know, so... I guess I, I want to keep myself from going on a, a long uh, political diatribe here, but um, yeah, we need people who who understand what the possibilities are and can really take action to control the situation, you know, and that's what they're trying to do in the U.S. especially now. So I think you, I mean, I've got a question here. You stated, be careful not to cross the line between helpful and creepy, <laughs> right? When you're using AI and taking yeah. in data yeah. and processing it. And you mentioned a really good kind of rule of thumb. If, if you're going to take something, if you're going to do something, if you're going to use something, then you must give something. There needs to be a reason. There needs to be a payoff for that increases the essentially the utility and value to the user. So with respect to shopping data and tracking, what, what does this really mean? Um, that, what is that line between helpful and creepy? How, how does a, an e-commerce vendor be really clear on that line? Yeah, it's uh, largely it's about understanding your customers, right? Um, well, there's two things. One is to say, to align your interests. So you say, okay, um, I want to make sure I'm always looking out for the customer's best interest. And that includes, well, that's something which is a general principle we should always follow as, as companies. But it also includes our use of data and analytics, right? And so we're not looking out for my customer's best interests. 
then we've already crossed a line, which is which is dangerous, right? So, and a lot of companies want to cross that line. Okay, they they want to they they're not so interested in looking out for their customers' best interests, and and fair enough, you know that's their decision, right? But that, now you're taking your risk, and the risk you're taking is that when what you're doing becomes public, which it eventually will, now you're going to lose um, reputation. You're going to lose face. You know, you know what's creepier or not? That's the second question of how do I understand the customers and know what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with, right? And that's really a learning process. So we had this, you know, for example, at you know, eBay, we have these this feature in some of the sites I worked on where you'd say like last product viewed. For people who are sharing their account with someone else, that sometimes crossed a line because they didn't want the person they're sharing their account with to see the last product they had viewed. Okay, maybe it was a birthday gift or maybe it was something that which is personal. So that's a really useful feature for a customer in general, because now I can remember what it was I was looking at yesterday and I, I can't find it again. Um, but you have to really understand your clientele and know okay, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. There's a lot of situations like that for them, too, where they would try to be helpful to the customer um, and they would end up doing something that crossed the line. Someone would feel like, hey, my privacy was invaded or my data wasn't protected enough by what you did, even though it was meant in a helpful way. So it's really a learning process. Um, and as an executive, as a product owner, you've got to constantly be monitoring, okay, how are customers responding to what I'm presenting to them? And I think you talk to this very nicely in the book. In multiple places, you say, look, ultimately, um, beyond the technical aspects of, uh, you know, what's possible with AI, it's very important to have somebody who it has an extreme understanding of the context, the business context, the personal context, and can mm -hmm. really be sensitive to the user needs, <laughs> ultimately. So, um, so I think one of the key conclusions I got from the book is that this is such a progressive area that, you know, I, I feel that you've demystified big data and AI, but I also have great respect for the complexities of it. And I'm very sure if I get AI or big data projects, I, I would have to call you. <laughs> I need your help. I need your team's <laughs> help. Um, uh, so thank you so much for your time, Dr. David Stevenson. We, we appreciate this book. I, I certainly would, will be recommending this to my friends as well. And uh, to anybody who wants to be have big data and AI demystified, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Thank you very much.